Hello and welcome to another anatomy podcast. This one's a little bit different. Um, with me, I have Mr. Mike Austin, who's a consultant ophthalmologist um, and also a senior clinical tutor here in Swansea. So he teaches all our students about the eye. And this this podcast is probably mostly directed at our students, is it, Mike? Or v- very much so. Uh, I suppose once it's out there in the Twitterverse or whatever, yeah, uh, anybody can uh, can pick it up. But yeah, yeah it's, ma- it's mainly aimed at the. Week 127 students before they do week 127. Okay, so it's going to help you guys in that week and in future weeks, and it'll probably help other people as well if you're interested. So um, your teaching week is coming up in the first year, and this is the first time students are going to meet the eye, which is nice, complex, important structure linked with other complex, important structures. What are they going to meet in that first week? We're going to go through our case of the week to uh, learn about the structure of the eye. And I guess you can approach this from either a very simplistic point of view or you can get just about as complicated as you like. I think it's best to start fairly simple. And uh, we'll see the eye as having some transparent bits that allow an image to land upon some light-sensitive bits and then we've got some neurology elements to process the image to reach consciousness. So start simple and, and then get we can more build complicated. It up. <laughs> and we, okay. we can go, we can go as, as deep as you like. The thing for the students is not to get overwhelmed by just how complicated some of these elements can be. And, and certainly yep. if you were to go and search on the web, say from some of the American uh, universities have got a lot of their neuroscience teaching on the web now, you can be very daunted by the amount of stuff that there's there. We don't want to do that here. What we really want to do here is concentrate on the clinically relevant uh, anatomy and uh, structure and function. And if we can't hang a clinical feature of importance upon a particular part of basic science, then we have to ask why we're teaching that. Okay. Um, so why did you choose the case of the week? Well, in, in the medical school course now, we've got two main weeks where we can teach about the eye and the visual system. We've got week 127 in year one, yeah. and we've got an, an eye week as part of the clinical attachments in, in years year three and four. Right, yeah. uh, and it just nicely works out that we can do a case of the week, which is sudden visual disturbance, which we do in the first year, yeah. because that's quite a nice way to lead people through the basic structure of the eye and what can go acutely wrong. And then in the year three week, we can look at some of the major causes of blindness that tend to be more gradual in their onset and concentrating upon different parts of retinal anatomy and pathology. So uh, the sudden visual disturbance case can really take us quite nicely from the very front of the visual system to the very back higher end. And as we go, we can look for sites of pathology and clinical features. Okay. So how have you structured the week? In the past, students have been a bit gobsmacked by uh, the (laughs) sheer amount of new stuff. 
uh, and particularly now with the slightly redesigned course, we're covering a lot of stuff in perhaps fewer formal lecture type sessions. And uh, last year in particular, uh, students were pretty overwhelmed by the uh, first day of teaching. So what we've changed for this year is to uh, have some pre-learning materials where students can quietly, perhaps on their own or with a friend, uh, go through a narrated PowerPoint presentation of the uh, structure of the eye and some interesting and important uh, functional elements. They can do this, hopefully, uh, perhaps in conjunction with this podcast, uh, over the weekend or the few days prior to the, the week. And then when we get to the Monday morning, rather than having a fairly dry uh, lecture from me, we can have a quick interactive quiz just to confirm some of the, uh, the principles that have been absorbed. And then we can look at the case of the week to uh, just lead us through how acute visual disturbance is a good way to approach learning basic science of the, uh, particularly the front end of the visual pathway. Yep. And then on the Tuesday, we've got, and of course, on the rest of the Monday morning, we've got some anatomy uh, practical stations. Very important. Essential elements of the, of yeah. the course, uh, which I know the students always uh, enjoy, particularly for this week, and the various uh, mnemonics and stuff that we teach them. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Monday afternoon, they can go away and uh, do a bit more self-directed learning, perhaps from some of the... the uh, materials that we've recommended and then on the Tuesday morning we've got two lectures one taking the image from the retina up to consciousness and an introduction to clinical ophthalmology where we can look at some of the other uh, disease processes whereby vision can be suddenly disturbed and that will uh, fit in nicely with this part of the uh, approach to the anatomy and function of the eye and will complement the third year week where we look at the more gradual causes of loss of vision and the major causes of blindness uh, in this country and worldwide. Good stuff. I know in previous weeks students have said that they've been um, a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of knowledge. We have to introduce it somehow. There is a certain sort of gram for gram, the eye has got more going on than uh, yes. anywhere else in the body. And it connects to the brain, which is almost as bad. Exactly. Uh, so they do have a certain amount of new stuff coming thick and fast. But over the course of the week, we are actually using the other parts of the week to reinforce the messages that we get on day one. And this is the case through the tutorial uh, session on Wednesday morning. We have a tutorial session on Wednesday morning that's a bit like the anatomy morning, where we have uh, an anatomy station, histology, a tame ophthalmologist or two oh, right, to answer okay. questions, and also some pharmacology. And then in, in the clinical methods day on the Thursday, we're actually having the students practice the clinical skills to elicit the physical signs that are concerned with the anatomy and physiology that they've been learning to enable them to be able to evaluate a patient's visual system and work out what's going on. And I know that you've, a lot of this is in response to the students' feedback from last year. So that feedback was invaluable for you being able to prepare this pre-learning stuff to help them prepare themselves for the week. Yeah, very much so. The students uh, don't hold back in their ability to offer sensible and constructive uh, criticism yeah, and it's good of for us. Uh, what we do, which is nice, peer review. 
Yeah, because we know how to change what we do so that it's better. Yes. So hopefully this week will be really good this year, because I know it's normally a very good week as it is. Um, so and then on the Friday, yeah. on, on the Friday we have a, a washing up session for the week, which hopefully won't have to deal very much with the causes of sudden loss of vision, but uh, will be a chance for the students to interact with a group of professionals. Uh, I've got a, a nurse specialist from ophthalmology coming in, together with an optometrist or optician, as the students might have thought of them in the past, yeah. together with a, a representative from the Royal National Institute for Blind People to talk about rehab and how we care for people with visual impairment in the hospital and in the community. Uh, and that's usually quite a good question and answer uh, session that we do. Uh, and I think will link quite nicely to the Medicine, Health and Society session about uh, social deprivation that follows. Okay, good. And the expert forum is hopefully somewhere where the students can bring all their knowledge from the week and all their understanding and the stuff they don't quite get and ask you guys. Hopefully there won't be too much of that. And, no and, we, can, and we, can, we can be a bit more touchy-feely and talk about how we uh, care for the patients, particularly the ones that we can't help by doing medical or surgical things to them. Yeah, okay. Should be good. So um, what do they do in year three then? In year three, there are a series of uh, clinical attachments in five-week uh, blocks, and one of the five-week blocks has a week with uh, ophthalmology in it. And for that session, uh, we have a teaching day where we can do some stuff over here in the university. And then for the rest of the week, there's a clinical uh, attachment to the eye clinics and operating theatres yeah. where the students can learn about some of the gradual visual loss conditions, cataract glaucoma, diabetic eye disease, age-related macular degeneration, those sorts of things that will really impact on their lives, say if they're general practitioners or any kind of hospital doctor. So are these the types of things they're going to see in their training as well then? Very much so, yeah. Okay. And in their elderly relatives who always come along and ask about these, uh, these things. I bet they do. Okay, so our students then can, before um, the eye week begins... Uh, will it be in reception Thursday, Friday before? For, from reception in the Grove Building, hopefully from the Wednesday of the week before. Okay. Uh, they can pick up a CD-ROM, yep. which has got uh, a narrated uh, presentation from me that lasts about 20 minutes. Uh, and has also got a couple of PDF documents from the British Medical Journal dealing with uh, sudden loss of vision from the student BMJ. And you've got some links from that presentation, I think, out to other areas. And there, there are some links uh, that they can explore yeah. further if they wish. So students must go and pick up that pre-learning before the week, something to do over the weekend. It doesn't look too onerous, but it looks very interesting. I think it looks great fun. And if they don't do it, they may struggle the first morning. Yeah, yeah, it'll definitely <laughs> help with the case presentation and the anatomy. Uh, okay, excellent. So given this is an anatomy podcast and given the case of the week... Um, can we talk about the biomedical causes of sudden loss of vision? Yeah, and I think this is, this is a good opportunity to do that. Uh, if we think of the front part of the eye as being transparent, clear ocular media that produce a focused image onto the light-sensitive retina, yeah. then any of these transparent bits can lose their transparency. So it's yeah. important to know that the cornea is transparent because it's relatively dehydrated. It's got a nice covering with a nice epithelium covered in tears, yeah. which have a very special relationship with the epithelium. That can be disrupted. Yeah. The corneal stroma can go cloudy if it loses its uh, fine, tightly packed nature. And that can happen if the endothelium breaks down. 
Uh, we're unlucky, actually, as humans in our corneal endothelium. We're stuck with it from birth, and we've got so many cells there, and we lose a few every year. Oh, really? And if we lived long enough... If we lived long enough, we'd all go blind in our 120s because oh, really? we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have enough corneal endothelial cells to enable us to keep our corneas clear. Oh, I didn't know that. Behind that, of course, we've got the uh, anterior chamber full of clear aqueous humour yep. and hopefully not blood and pus because <laughs> that would cause trouble. Yes. Uh, and then behind that, of course, we've got a lens Yep. and the, uh, the lens remains clear until it goes cloudy with cataract. Yeah, and that that's another design fault in the human, because we're we're not designed to live much longer than our thirty years to reproduce and die, uh, but of course now we live longer, and the fact that our corn that the fact <laughs> the fact that our lens is wrapped up in an inside out epithelium yeah. means that we're depositing more and more lens cells into a lens that's not designed to live too long, uh, and therefore our lenses will eventually make themselves go cloudy. Uh, and that's when our patients turn up with cataracts. So they just become opaque with time. They become opaque with time, and uh, we remove them and replace them with plastic lenses. So the structure of the eye, the basic structure of the eye, and the histology are really important bits of anatomy to know, to be able to understand this. Yes, it, it's always nice to be able to understand what's the underlying cause for something being normal in order to understand how pathology yep. or age can uh, can make it abnormal and diseased and requiring of attention. And, of course, the basic science is how we approach scientific medicine to solve people's clinical problems. Yep. So we talked about, are those all of the clear structures that can well, well, no, we absolutely. We, we, we've, got a nice, uh, we've got a nice vitreous gel yeah. between our lenses and the, uh, the retina. Yeah. And that usually stays transparent unless it's bled into. Uh, and of course, with age, it sort of degenerates a bit and can cause damage to the next layer out in the eye, which is the retina. So the nature of the vitreous in youth and later life can predispose to its own set of conditions that can damage the retina. Uh -huh. So all of these things can suddenly cause visual problems. When we actually get back to the retina itself... Uh, and we'll see more of this on the Tuesday morning session where we look at the uh, conditions that cause uh, visual loss. We can have problems with the retina as a regular structure. We can have problems with the vascular supply and venous drainage of the retina. We can have age-related changes in the retina or trauma. And the retina, of course, is the light-sensitive layer at the back of the eye whose job it is to create action potentials in the nerve fibres that make up the optic nerve that connect to the high visual pathways. Yep. And there's a whole load of conditions that can affect the optic nerve, either acutely or gradually. And we'll see about some of those and how we can use history taking and clinical examination to confirm the integrity or otherwise of the optic nerve function. And then, of course, as we get further back, the optic nerves from the right and left orbits meet up at the optic chiasm and then they swap some fibres yep. at the uh, decussation of the chiasm. And this is a sort of fundamental thing that happens in the visual system that allows us to separate conditions anterior to it from conditions posterior to it. So if we're thinking about pathology anterior to the chiasm, 
we can confirm that by testing pupil reactions. Yeah. And if we're thinking about pathology behind the chiasm, then it won't affect pupil reactions, uh, but it will affect visual fields. And we can pick up particular defects in the peripheral vision affecting both eyes if the lesion is behind the chiasm. And we'll be doing this, of course, on the Thursday uh, clinical methods session. Sure. And that's an important uh, concept that students certainly need to be aware of. Great truths. Yeah. So what are the differences between gradual changes in vision and sudden onset changes then? Are there different causes or different ages? Or There are different causes and most of the gradual loss of vision conditions tend to affect the more elderly population. And I guess this is a group of uh, people who expect things to deteriorate to a certain extent with age. And not infrequently, patients come and see me in the clinic and they, they tell me that they expect their eyes to uh, not work very well when they're elderly. And from, what, a, from what you've been saying, it sounds like we should all expect our eyes to not be working well when we're elderly. Well, there, 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 true, are, there are lots of habits that pack up with age, aren't there? But yeah. I think with the eyes, that's not necessarily the case. Oh, that's good news. And we should expect our elderly patients to be able to see well. Okay. Uh, so the sorts of things that can pack up with, with age uh, are particularly central retinal or macular function, uh, which can deteriorate with age and uh, can to a certain extent either be treated or warded off by a healthy and in particular non-smoking lifestyle. Uh, other conditions that can affect us with age are things like cataract and glaucoma yep. that are preventable and treatable causes of visual deterioration. And in the eye clinic, tens of thousands of people come through with these sorts of things every year. So in the younger people, uh, it tends to be younger people that come along with sudden visual disturbance, perhaps in uh, adult, early adulthood or middle years. Uh, they think they're going to live a long time and expect to have good vision for at least a good while. Yeah. So when they feel something suddenly happens to their vision, they're scared, they think they may go blind, and they uh, pitch up to the optometrist or the GP or the rapid access eye casualty clinic uh, really in quite a state and what's nice is to be able to take a history perform an examination work out uh, hopefully fairly rapidly a diagnosis of where the problem is in their eyes or brains yeah and work out what the answer is and to be able to either reassure the patient that they've got something that's going to resolve or isn't really that bad or is eminently treatable or that may occasionally need further interventions to either save the site or sometimes have uh, impact on, uh, on life. Some of our patients say that present with sudden onset double vision may have potentially life-threatening uh, neurological or vascular conditions. Yeah. So we see all kinds of people with sudden onset visual disturbance who usually have something fairly innocuous but who may have eye-threatening sight-threatening or indeed life-threatening conditions so this I, I tell the students to think about blindness and death when they're revising this topic right uh, that's perhaps being a bit over dramatic uh, but it just lets you know that this is potentially serious stuff yeah I mean this is uh, loss in vision or change to your vision has such a profound impact on the way you live your day-to-day -day life. I bet this is one of those things that gets people into the doctor pretty rapidly rather than putting it off. And it do does, it day. does. We have, in, in our uh, 
area of Australia, we have about uh, 20,000 acute uh, presentations a year. 20,000? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Obviously, most of those people have fairly minor things, but some of them, in amongst all that uh, morass of uh, low-level stuff, will have a few patients with brain tumours, developing strokes, being at risk of sudden death. Yeah, yeah. Is there any particular bit of anatomy you want to talk about or is there any uh, particular degenerative condition or cause of sudden I think the, the, you want to talk about? Some of the things that uh, students perhaps have the most difficulty with is some of the more intricate elements of how do these little autonomic fibres get <laughs> to uh, different parts of the eye in order for our pupils to work properly. Yeah. Uh, those are important areas and uh, hopefully we can explore that during the, the week. These are, imp it may feel fairly sort of esoteric and obscure how, uh, how these nerve fibres work, but by knowing how they work, we can work out that when we elicit particular examples of abnormal pupil reactions, we can confirm that the problem is in the orbit or in the brainstem or in the chest yeah. or wherever. And uh, that's a very useful thing to be able to do. And that, that's, quite, that's quite nice. The elements of neurology that we touch on in ophthalmology yeah. uh, can reinforce our neurology teaching, but also make us useful people to our patients. Yeah, I think when students are looking at the ciliary ganglion, the pterygopalatine ganglion, they shouldn't panic. It, it looks complicated, but there are some nice diagrams out there that explain the routes that fibres are taking. And it's, it's most important, I think, to relate the function and the clinical function yes. to those fibres as, as much as the anatomy itself. Yes. For instance, some people, after an acute viral illness, have their ciliary ganglions pack up. And of course, that's where the cell body is of the postganglionic parasympathetic fiber yep. innervating the pupillary sphincter. So these people will come along with a fixed dilated pupil yeah. and uh, they'll be scared. And we can tell them whether or not it's their recent viral illness or whether it's the aneurysm about to pop in their brain. So I've poked myself in the eye before and got stuff in the eye cycling. Um, what's the innovation to the cornea? It's going to be the trigeminal nerve. It is, it is. It's the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve, or 5A. And uh, if you poke yourself in the eye, you'll rub off your corneal epithelium and you'll expose some naked nerve endings. And that's usually a very painful thing. And uh, your uh, corneal epithelium actually grows over quite quickly. Right. So you'll heal over that defect quite quickly. One of the problems with the corneal epithelium is it doesn't stick down to the underlying layers quite so well. Right. So uh, you can easily rub off the healing epithelium quite soon afterwards and get like a recurrent abra ah, abrasion. Okay. But generally it heals up okay? Generally it heals up, it heals up okay, yeah. yeah. Are there risks of infection in there? There are risks of infection. You can get bacterial infection. Uh, perhaps the main infection that we uh, that we can see in the, in the cornea that has an anatomical uh, correlate would be uh, herpes simplex uh, right. infection. Herpes simplex virus can lie dormant in the trigeminal ganglion, and active virus can come down the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve to cause viral ulcers on the cornea, which is a bit like getting a cold sore. Only rather than the uh, blisters breaking out on your lip, you get to get an ulcer on your cornea instead. 
this is the way we sort of explain that to patients. That doesn't sound very nice. It isn't very nice, and it can make quite a mess of your cornea in time yeah. uh, with, with sort of long-term scarring. So the cold sore on your lip uh, tends to heal up quite nicely and not leave a scar, but the viral ulcer on your cornea can leave a, can leave a permanent scar. Is this something that comes back? And it can again? come back again and again over your lifetime, yeah. Oh, lovely. Um, so you mentioned before that the corneal um, endothelium doesn't replenish. So does that affect... The opacity of the cornea, as in, do, do those ulcers and that damage, do they affect the opacity of the cornea over time? or is It, it can, yeah. The cornea's got an epithelium, a stroma, and an endothelium, and each of these layers can have their own pathologies, which can lead to loss of transparency. So, say in herpes simplex epitheliopathy, you can get recurrent scarring. Yeah. Uh, with endothelial disease, which can also happen due to herpes or trauma or repeated surgery to the eye or advanced age or genetic defect in the endothelium, these things can cause the endothelial function to failure to to fail and uh, that can cause loss of corneal transparency too so the epithelium is okay that grows back but the endothelium doesn't replenish so we 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 have our endothelium from from our birth Mm. and uh, we only have a certain amount of it we lose a few of those cells every year to age and Perhaps in, in youth, we may have a couple of thousand cells per square millimetre. Yeah. In, the, in old age, maybe only a few hundred. And once it goes below a few hundred, then the cornea can become opaque. Surgically, of course, we can replace any layer of the cornea as a distinct entity. We, can't, we don't have to do a full thickness corneal graft operation really? just to replace one part of the cornea. So the epithelium can be replaced via stem cell grafting at the limbus and the endothelium can be replaced by an endothelial graft huh which is neat very talking about endothelium and epithelium and cell layers what key bits of embryology what key ideas in the development of the eye um, are important in understanding the anatomy of the eye and maybe clinical problems with the eye that was a very good link the uh, embryology we tend to think of as a fairly dry uh, topic and no, I remember no, 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 <laughs> I remember studying serial sections of pig embryos years ago um, the embryology of the eye is a fascinating uh, topic and there's some good links on the internet to look at animations of how the eye develops yeah and a couple of the interesting parts are the sort of double infolding or invagination uh, processes that take place for the formation of the retina via uh, invagination of the optic cup and this gives rise to the neurosensory retina uh, having a distinct origin compared with the underlying retinal pigment epithelium. Now, in life, uh, the retinal pigment epithelium, which has a different origin, looks after the neurosensory retina, and in some disease processes, uh, the retina can suffer because of an unhealthy retinal pigment epithelium. Right. Uh, Perhaps the easiest way to think about this dual origin of the retina is in retinal detachment. Because the neurosensory retina invaginates the developing optic cup and and puts itself down against the retinal pigment epithelium, yeah. a potential space develops is 
a potential space exists between the two layers ah. and therefore it can open up in pathology and in the development of retinal detachment that's what happens a hole happens in the a hole is pulled in the neurosensory retina when the vitreous gel collapses in later life and as the vitreous gel collapses it can pull a hole in the neurosensory retina and fluid can then get through and tease apart the neurosensory retina from the retinal pigment epithelium and then of course we have to surgically put it back otherwise the the patient will go blind so the symptoms of that are loss of vision in that area absolutely and as the ret- as the retina peels itself away from the retinal pigment epithelium then uh, a curtain of bad vision or black vision will come oh, across right. the uh, across the visual visual field so throughout anatomy we keep harping on about potential spaces and there's another one in yes, the eye it is nice. while we're talking about invaginating structures uh, the lens develops in a similar way as an infolding of surface ectoderm yeah and that means our lens is actually an epithelium turned in on itself where the basement membrane is the outside structure yes. and the epithelium is inside that capsular bag uh, and that's how we get cataracts because if we live long enough we'll deposit enough lens cells inside our lens capsular bag from division of cells in the epithelium which sits essentially just underneath the anterior part of the lens capsule. We pack those cells down within our lenses through life and eventually they will become opaque. Yep. I think we've got a podcast on eye embryology somewhere. So our students, particularly in the first year, probably don't know that much about glaucoma and the macula. You've talked about macular degeneration and glaucoma. Um, Can you introduce those topics for these guys and also talk about the relevant anatomy? Yeah, in, in this country, the biggest cause of loss of vision is age-related macular degeneration, uh, where the macula can either just pack up or where abnormal blood vessels can grow through from the choroid through the retinal pigment epithelium and into the neurosensory retina and cause bleeding and scarring. To define the macula for these guys? To find the macula, we'll, we'll be doing this in the integrated uh, yeah. clinical method session. We'll use an ophthalmoscope to look at the back of the eye, we'll see the optic disc, and just temporal to the optic disc is the macula, which is the most accurately seeing central part of the retina, uh, which is a specialised area for our most accurate vision. Uh-huh. So in macular degeneration, uh, we can have pathology in the retina, second commonest cause of vision in this country uh, would be glaucoma. It's also the commonest cause of preventable visual loss because if picked up early we can treat it uh, by lowering intraocular pressure to prevent progression of damage. I guess one of the interesting parts about one of the ways we detect glaucoma is to look at the peripheral field of vision because that's where glaucoma strikes first by eating away at peripheral vision. Now because the maculas are most accurately seeing part of the eye, lots and lots of nerve fibres stream from the macula straight to the optic disc and occupy quite a big space uh, in the optic disc of the temporal part of the optic disc. And therefore nerve fibres from more peripheral temporal parts of the retina have to curve around the macula and curve around the papillomacular bundle of nerve fibres in order to gain access to the optic disc at its superior and inferior poles. Uh, 
Right. So in glaucoma, we can see signs on the optic disc where the uh, nerve fiber rim of the disc can become notched or damaged at the superior and inferior poles. And in the field of vision, because the fibers curving around the macula don't cross the horizontal midline, in, in fact, there's a structure called the horizontal raphi in the retina, uh, where all the superior nerve fibers curve around the superior macula and all the inferior fibers curve around the inferior macula. Because of this respecting of the horizontal midline by the nerve fibers, defects in the peripheral vision in glaucoma also respect the horizontal midline. So we tend huh. to lose perhaps part of the superior field or part of the inferior field in an asymmetric way. Oh, the anatomy explains that. And the, so the anatomy nice. explains that, yeah. So we talked about um, acute visual loss, so sudden loss of vision. How can anatomy help us understand why that occurs and what's going on in those processes? So we've looked at how sudden opacity in the transparent ocular media can cause acute visual disturbance. And when we get to retinal causes, uh, we can remember the way the nerve fibers and cells are arranged in the retina with the outer retina, that's the rods and cones and the bipolar cells and the Muller cells. They tend to be arranged vertically compared with the uh, plane of the retina. Yeah. Whereas in the inner retina, the retinal ganglion cells give out their axons to make up the retinal nerve fiber layer. And that runs along the surface of the retina uh, at right angles to all the other fibers. So in conditions like acute ischemia or types of diabetic retinopathy, uh, any hemorrhages that we get in the nerve fiber layer tend to be flame-shaped and, and orientated parallel with the nerve fibres, hence their flame shape. Right. And quite often in acute retinal ischemia, axoplasmic flow ceases within the nerve fibres and they then burst and belch out their axoplasm uh, in a white fluffy thing that we call a cotton wool spot, quite often next to a flame-shaped hemorrhage. Ah, huh. okay. Whereas deeper in the retina... Uh, because the fibres are arranged the other way around, when we have acute bleeding in the deeper layers of the retina, then uh, they tend to be big blobby haemorrhages, um, and that, that sort of differentiates them from the more inner retinal causes. So there are distinct things you can see to help you with diagnosis and the anatomy and understanding the function. E exactly. So, so in, in a patient with a, an acute central retinal vein occlusion, they would have lots and lots of big blobby hemorrhages because the blood vessels are bursting. Yep. But if there was significant retinal ischemia, then they would have flame-shaped hemorrhages and cotton wool spots as well. Oh, okay. And that would tend to indicate a worse prognosis in an ischemic eye. So if we, we're talking about the, these neurons now, if we go back through the optic nerve, how can our anatomy, anatomical understanding of those structures help us with diagnosing problems with vision? Quite often with these these concepts, in particular, relate particularly perhaps relating these with these concepts, and particularly say if you want to put it across in an exam answer, keywords uh, are nice to plop in, aren't they? And, <laughs> okay. and uh, retinotopic is is a keyword we need to think about here, and this is the way the relationship of the fibres 
in the nerve fibers in the visual pathway are related to each other remains constant from the retina through the optic nerve and back to the visual cortex. So what's supranasal in the retina tends to be supranasal in the optic nerve and all those fibers tend to go with each other through the more posterior parts of the pathway. So they're very organized. They're, they're, they're very organized and uh, that helps us because we can use the way these fibers are arranged to detect pathology in different sites by assessing the field of vision. In different sites of the brain, the optic nerve? In different parts of the visual pathway, that's right. So one of the things about the human visual pathway is that the nasal fibres in the optic nerve, when the optic nerves join each other at the optic chiasm, the nasal fibres actually decussate and cross over to the other side. Yeah. So that means that we have one half of the world, say the left-hand side of the world, that will project onto the temporal retina of the right eye and the nasal retina of the left eye, those fibres are going to join up with each other at the chiasm and immediately behind in the optic tract and tend to go back to the right-hand side of the brain. Conversely, the right-hand side of the world will project onto the temporal retina of the left eye and the nasal retina of the right eye, and those fibres will meet up at the chiasm in the left optic tract and go back to the left side of the brain. So if we think about conditions that can affect the visual pathway posterior to the chiasm, then one of the hallmarks is going to be a visual field defect that affects the opposite side of the world. Yes. So if we have a stroke or a brain tumour or other disease process happening in, say, the left optic tract or left optic radiation or left visual cortex, then the visual field defect will be in the right-hand side of the world and it won't cross the vertical midline. So that's an important thing. Glaucoma causes visual field defects that represent the horizontal midline and neurological posterior to the chiasm causes of visual disturbance affect, respect the vertical midline. Okay. Talking about the optic chiasm, um, our students should, should know by now that the pituitary gland is very close by. Y yes, it is. So... Uh, about a centimetre below the optic chiasm is the superior part of the pituitary fossa. Yeah. So pathology such as a pituitary tumour arising out of the pituitary fossa, once it's travelled that distance, will start to impinge on the inferior fibres in the optic chiasm. And of course in the inferior part of the optic chiasm, centrally, we've got fibres coming from both nasal retinae. Or retinas even yeah and what that will involve then is a defect in the part of the world served by those temporal retinal fibers which will be the outer parts of the field of vision so the classic visual field defect for a pituitary tumor is a bitemporal hemianopia where from the vertical midline outwards we don't see so well Hopefully that's that's a good clear piece 
of anatomy, which hopefully students can link up to see how important understanding absolutely the and pathways of these fibers can help them. Yeah, and and in Swansea we see probably about a dozen new pituitary tumors a year. Yeah, and not infrequently these patients come along via the eye clinic. Yeah, where they've been sent via their opticians, who have detected a visual field defect. Yeah, at a routine eye exam. So that's a potentially worrying thing. Is retinotopy maintained further back? Yes, it is. As we go back through the optic tracts to the lateral geniculate nuclei where there's a synapse. So that's quite a long axon from the retinal ganglion cell layer to the retinal nerve fibre layer, optic nerve, chiasm, optic tract. That's quite a long nerve fibre. It then synapses in the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus and the next neuron will project through the optic radiation and get to the visual cortex. Again, quite a long neuron again. And the retinotope is maintained such that the superior fibres pass superiorly in the optic radiation, which takes a, a path through the parietal lobe of the brain. And the more inferior fibres take a loop into the temporal lobe of the brain, Mayer's loop, and therefore fibres can become separated superiorly and inferiorly but those groups of fibres tend to run together either in the superior part of the optic radiation which goes through the parietal lobe or the inferior part of the optic radiation which goes through the temporal lobe so disease processes in these areas not only have a visual field defect that would be homonymous respecting the vertical midline on the one side and also respecting the horizontal midline tending to be more superiorly or inferiorly but might also exhibit disease features related to the part of the brain that the fibers are passing through for instance right, yes have you have we done the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe yes, yet? yeah yeah they should know where those are so will we know that parietal lobe disease can be associated with sensory inattention they probably haven't made that association yet but they have now <laughs> and that temporal lobe fibers and disease there can be associated with things like temporal lobe epilepsy and sensory hallucinations like right. funny tastes and smells. Huh. There's a lot of this sort of thing being determined from damage to brains and disease to brains or have these neurons been mapped directly? I think both of those things may apply. Certainly there are, there are uh, pathological and histochemical techniques that can be used to track nerve fibres, but a lot of classical anatomy has been determined by patients that have had lesions in different parts of the brain. There's a, there's a New York a neurologist called Oliver Sacks who's written a series of wonderful books. Uh, for instance, The Man Whose Wife Mistook Him for a Hat. Right. Uh, Tell me more. <laughs> who, who, through, who, through the case histories of his patients, uh, brilliantly describes which bits of the brain can be associated with, bits, with which sort of diseases. Sounds like something the students could look out for. I think so. What about disease anterior to the chiasm then? Uh, we're getting towards the relative afferent pupillary defect, aren't we? Yeah. So because the fibres decussate at the chiasm, we've got a bilateral input to the visual pathway posterior to the chiasm. Conversely, anterior to the chiasm, we've only got fibres from the one side. And therefore, if we've got disease in the retina or the optic nerve or the optic nerve head, as in glaucoma, or going back 
pretty well as far as the chiasm, then we can pick up pathology there by testing pupil reactions. Oh, right, okay. Easy as that. So if we shine a light in one eye, because the fibres decussate at the chiasm, then part of the uh, sensory signals from that one eye will project to both optic tracts and therefore both lateral geniculate nuclei. One of the things that students quite often find difficult is the neuroanatomy of the pupillary light reflex. Yes. And perhaps you've come across this before. <laughs> I've come across certain difficulties in neuroanatomy, which I think most of the listeners will be aware of. And, and, and what can happen here is that there may be a tendency to think, why the heck are we learning all this stuff? Well, it, it's very useful to be able to confirm the integrity of the neurology anterior to the chiasm in a whole number of disease processes. For instance, if we've got a patient with a dense lens that we can't see through, if the pupil reactions are normal, we know the retina works and the optic nerve works. Right. So the neuroanatomy of the pupillary light reflex is such that if we shine a light in one eye, both pupils will constrict. Yes. And the reason for that is that with the chiasm and the decussation that takes place there, signals from the one eye go back to both optic tracts. Right. And fibres from both optic tracts send fibres to the pretectal nuclei in the midbrain. Yeah. At the level of the superior colliculus. Have we met the superior colliculus? Uh, if they haven't, they will. And there, pretectal nuclear fibres project to both sides of the midbrain right. to innovate the Edinger-Westphal nuclei or the parasympathetic nuclei of the third nerve nuclei. Yeah. The Edinger-Westphal nuclei sitting just on top of the third nerve nuclei. And then these interneurons synapse with the preganglionic parasympathetic fibres yeah. that are going to pass with the third nerve, yeah. the oculomotor nerve, on each side to synapse in the ciliary ganglion, which will meet on Monday morning, yeah. where the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres will pass through the ciliary nerves, yeah. the short ciliary nerves even, to reach the sphincter pupillae. So we've got a double crossing, if yeah, you yeah. like. We've got a decussation at the chiasm and giving f f nerve signals from one eye to both optic tracts. And we've also got, via the bilateral projection from the pretectal nuclei, we've got a bilateral innovation from each side to both Edinger-Westphal nuclei. Yes. That's probably the best description I've heard. That makes a lot more sense to me now than it has in the past. Yeah. So by shining a light in one eye, both pupils should constrict. Yeah, yeah. And when we shine the light in one eye, the, the pupil on the same side constricting, we call a direct pupillary response. Yeah. And the contralateral pupil constricting, we call a consensual response. Yes. It gets even better. Go on. If you chop off the optic nerve, then clearly you're not going to get any signals going back in that optic nerve. Yep. But if you've got a disease process that's only partially affecting one optic nerve, then although signals are going back on that side, they're not going back as well 
as on the normal side. Okay. And this then allows us to compare the quality of the pupil reactions caused by shining the light in one eye with the quality of the pupil reactions that we get when we shine the light in the other eye. I see. So if we've got a really good healthy optic nerve on the one side and we've lost half the optic nerve function, say, to optic neuritis or glaucoma or ischemia or a stroke yep. on the other side, but the nerve's still working a bit, then by swinging our light from one eye to the other, we can compare the amount of afferent input. Yeah, yeah. So when we shine the light in the good eye, both pupils will constrict well. Yeah. And then when we rapidly swing the light across to the bad side, because we've now got fewer signals going in, yeah. we're going to have fewer signals coming out yeah. on both sides. So when we swing from the good side to the bad side, the pupils that were previously have been constricted will now both dilate. That's a really nice bit of neuroanatomy. And that therefore tells us that the anterior part of the visual pathway on that side is compromised compared sure. with the other. Yep. And that's a very useful thing. So if we've got our patient coming along with a dense cataract, we should expect their pupil reactions to still be normal. If we do our swinging flashlight test and show a relative afferent pupillary defect, then that tells us there's something wrong either in the retina or the optic nerve head or the optic nerve and therefore we can warn our patient that they may not see that much better when we've replaced their cloudy lens surgically with a clear one. Right. So we've started talking about the autonomic nerves now. Parasympathetic fibres to the lacrimal gland are from cranial nerve 7, from the facial nerve. Uh, it, it, it's good that we're addressing the uh, autonomic uh, nervous system and the way it interacts with the eye and, and the orbit and the structures around those areas. Uh, because there are important entities in disease that are easier to understand if we know the anatomy of the autonomic nervous system. So we've just looked at some parasympathetic fibres in the third nerve. We've also got parasympathetic nerve fibres in the facial nerve. Yeah, that's how we do the end. So there's cranial nerve 3 and cranial nerve 7 are both then sending parasympathetic fibres up to the eye. Uh, cranial nerve 7 being the weepy, snotty, dribbly nerve, which in the eye is triggering the lacrimal gland to secrete, to make us weep. Um, I, I went into ophthalmology to get away from uh, snot and blood and, and stuff. You didn't get very far away. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything interesting you can tell us about uh, parasympathetic innovation to the lacrimal gland? Yeah, the uh, we, we've just learnt about the ciliary ganglion, where the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres to the sphincter pupillae have their cell bodies. We've also got the pterygopalatine or sphenopalatine ganglion, yep. which is where the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres for the lacrimal gland have their cell bodies. Okay. So we've got to get from the superior salivatory nucleus to the lacrimal gland and another wacky way in which our parasympathetic fibres can go is that in order to get to the orbit, for some reason, they travel part of the way in the facial nerve. Yes. And that means that we can't get away too much from the ENT end of things. Right. Because the facial nerve 
comes out of the skull through the stylomastoid foramen, but just before it does that, it sends the deep petrosal nerve, which carries the preganglionic parasympathetic fibers yeah. from the superior salivatory nucleus, heading towards the sphenopalatine ganglion. And that means that disease of the ear can affect the runniness of the eye. Oh, yeah, hadn't thought of that. So patients that get a Bell's palsy, for instance, where they have a lower motor neuron facial weakness, as that recovers, some of the nerve fibres can go the wrong way. So fibres that normally head for salivary glands... Yeah can actually, by mistake, find their way into the deep petrosal nerve and travel to the sphenopalatine ganglion and therefore get up to the eye. Really? So, so patients can get a dry eye from damage to this pathway by pathology in the ear. Yeah. They can also get a runny eye when they don't want one. That um, is a little strange. So you, you may have heard of the, uh, the crocodile tears uh, effect. No. I've heard of crocodile tears, but I haven't heard of the crocodile tears effect. Go on. Yeah. For, for, for our listeners, if they haven't heard of crocodile tears, the crocodile's supposed to cry before it eats you. And in crocodile tears, people lacrimate when they see food. Oh, really? So, ah. <laughs> oh, and and certainly I've, I've had patients that come along with this, not many patients, but certainly some patients that find that they cry with uh, with one eye when they sit in front of their luscious meal. Oh, good Lord. And that's because they're starting to salivate, but because they've had aberrant, in, in, aberrant regeneration from a facial nerve problem, they actually have innovation that was meant to go to their salivary glands, go to their lacrimal gland instead. That is a very strange bit of anatomy. So what about uh, sympathetic fibres? How do they get up into the eye? Because our... Listeners will be aware that the sympathetic ganglia are in the trunk, uh, and hopefully they're aware that they extend into the head by following major arteries, such as the common carotid and internal carotid artery. Um, what are the role of sympathetic fibres in the eye, and how do they get there? Well, the, the blood vessels uh, of the eye in orbit will have sympathetic innervation. Uh, in the iris, of course, we've got the rather diffuse muscle fibres of the dilator pupillae. Yeah. And they're innervated by the sympathetic nervous system, as are some little smooth muscle fibres in the upper lid, Muller's muscle, that uh, allows us to open our eyes a little bit wider when when we're perhaps afraid. So the flight or fight... Uh, effects of the sympathetic nervous system give us pupillary dilatation and also widely open palpebral apertures. Yep. And sympathetic fibres hitchhike on blood vessels for part of their course and cell bodies in the superior cervical ganglion are going to send fibres onto the uh, common carotid and then internal carotid artery and then these fibres are going to get to the uh, to the orbit via various little twigs for instance the yeah. sympathetic root of the ciliary ganglion yeah and and therefore if we have disease anywhere along this long pathway from the midbrain 
down into the chest, back up on the blood vessels, yeah. we can get problems with the sympathetic nervous system in the eye and that part of the face. Hang on. So now you're telling me that you can look at the eye and determine a pathological process in, say, the upper thorax or the neck? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> go on then, give me an example. Well, the thing called Horner's syndrome. Right. In, in Horner's syndrome, the innovation to dilate a pupillae becomes damaged and the sympathetic innovation to this little set of smooth muscle fibres in the upper lid becomes damaged. So the pupil becomes smaller, the palpable yeah. aperture becomes smaller, and the eye can look as though it's smaller because the eyelids are closer together. And of course, we can also get decreased sweating on that side of the face. So in Horner's syndrome, we've got to look a very long way from the midbrain right down into the chest. And one of the classic uh, ways of uh, having a Horner's syndrome is to have an apical lung cancer, which can affect these fibres as they come from the superior cervical ganglion onto the carotid artery. And that's called Pankos syndrome. Right. Pankos tumours. Pankos was an American radiologist that first described this. Uh, so in, in Pankos syndrome, you have an apical lung cancer damaging the sympathetic fibres, presenting with a Horner's syndrome with a small pupil, a small palpable aperture, decreased sweating on that side. So in Horner's syndrome, everything gets smaller or less. Right. <laughs> this is something that now the, the guys and girls listening to this really need to bear in mind when they're looking at the eye. Brilliant. One last thing. Uh, Colour blindness. Um, is there anything in anatomy that can help us understand this? Is colour blindness something that you see in your job, in your clinic? One of the funniest things I've ever come across was at a meeting where a brilliant speaker gave a tremendous presentation on uh, tumours in the eye. And everybody clapped such a lot at the end of this lecture, apart from one little man in the middle who got up and said, I'm sure that was very good, but I'm colourblind and I couldn't see any of the reds or the greens on your undoubtedly wonderful slides. Yeah. So colour blindness is a thing we all have to remember when we're presenting stuff because a few percent of our audience, uh, males yeah. usually, almost exclusively, uh, don't see reds and greens very well. Yes. Uh, and that's because the gene for the particular cone opsins that will be involved in phototransduction for the colours red and green, these genes are on the X chromosome and therefore we can have defects of this gene, which will be transmitted in an X-linked, sex-linked uh, genetic fashion right, and cause colour blindness in a few percent of male members. Okay. This, of course, has big relevance in addition to them not being able to see PowerPoint presentations. Colour blind people might have difficulty if they have an ambition to, say, be an electrician or a train driver. Oh, yes. Because they'd be weeded out, hopefully, at a fairly early stage. Yes, yeah, I've, I've been at uh, climbing walls with colourblind climbers and you say, go up the red route next to the green bit and no, they're, they're, they're stuffed with that. That was great. Thank you very much for giving us a lot of anatomy. I think that's a fairly, uh, hopefully useful 
introduction to how to think about the eye. You can think about simple things with the transparent ocular media, putting an image on the retina, the retina making nerve signals, the nerve signals going to consciousness. And within that, we have control mechanisms for regulating how the eye works to make an image, how the eye works to focus and move around, and how the retina works to part process an image before it gets to the optic nerve, and how the brain gets its images from different parts of the field of vision, and, and how it then processes them to be useful to us in our handling of visual information to enable us to do things. And hopefully that's going to be an enjoyable things for the students, not just in eye week, but throughout their careers, they will come across patients with one aspect of this type of neurological problem or, or visual problem. And it's nice just to lay some foundations for that uh, and hopefully find it enjoyable and interesting. Okay, sounds good. So I think um, the key ideas are that the eye is complicated. But if you work from anterior to posterior, if you work from where light enters really all the way back to the brain, link the structures to the function as usual and consider the brain, consider the neurology in functional function of the eye and aberrant function of the eye. Am I and, right? And that, that's, that's great. And that'll tell you roughly what sort of a problem you're dealing with, roughly where topographically in the visual system the problem is, and that will help you look for a physical sign. And one of the nice things about being an eye doctor is if there's something going on, there's usually a physical sign to confirm what you've thought from your history and examination right. to tell you what's going on. And luckily, quite often it's a, an attractive physical sign. There's either something nice to see about it or there's something neat about the way it works. Yeah. So it's aesthetically pleasing as well as clinically satisfying. Okay, so you've got a lot of enthusiasm for the eye. The eye is very, very important for the window of the to soul. Understand. Window of the soul. Window to the brain, by the sounds of it as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mike. Uh, our first years will see a lot of you in the eye week, and see you on locks, and see you in years three and four. And anybody who's not a Swansea medical student, I hope this has been helpful. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.